0: love what this little period of time they have in the hospital, how impactful you can be on their overall health.
1: Hi, this is Alice. And this is Shivali, And you're listening to the Peds Admit Podcast. Alice, I'm super excited for today's episode. We're going to be talking about bronchiolitis, which is really one of those greatest hits of pediatric medicine. Yes, bronchiolitis. If there's one thing that we can evaluate and treat a patient for, this is it. Exactly. And so we're so lucky to be sitting down with Dr. Tina Halley. She's one of our most beloved hospitalist attendings. She's a former children's resident. She's a delight to work with, and she offers the best teaching points. Exactly. So here's Dr. Halley. So thank you for joining us.
0: I am happy to do so and would be really excited to talk about bronchiolitis because it's one of my favorite diagnoses. Oh, wonderful. So when you think about bronchiolitis in general, do you have a definition and sort of a pathophysiology that you hold in your head? I do. I think literally about the name bronchiolitis and what that translates to, which would be inflammation of the smallest airways or the bronchioles. So Mm -hmm. literally an inflammation of the bronchioles. And, um, that's usually virally induced. There's usually a viral trigger that causes that inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that's generally the definition that I work off of, um, a viral trigger, a virally triggered inflammation of the smallest airways. Okay. Nice. And then Bronchiolitis is usually a clinical diagnosis, Mm -hmm. right? So when you hear about these patients, um, do you ever think about obtaining labs or getting diagnostic imaging? I generally don't. If the history and physical exam are consistent with bronchiolitis, that's really all you need for the diagnosis. If the diagnosis is in question and you're equally considering other things like a pneumonia or other diagnoses where imaging and labs are helpful by all means, we consider them at that point. But if a history and exam are consistent with bronchiolitis, you really don't need any supplemental labs or imaging. Okay. So under two, viral prodrome, work of breathing, no concern for pneumonia on exam, you have your diagnosis and it's time to move on to treatment. Exactly. Okay. And so... When do we, so you see this patient in the emergency room, how do you know that they need to come in? And if so, what sort of respiratory support do they need? That's a good question. When I think about patients with bronchiolitis needing inpatient care, um, you want to think about your general admission criteria in general. So we all know that bronchiolitis is generally something that's treated in a, a fashion of supportive care. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in a little bit. But does that supportive care require hospital-level intervention? So that's what I like to think about. Do they need assistance with their hydration that requires them to get IV fluids, which would be a hospital-level intervention? Are they hypoxic because of their bronchiolitis that requires supplemental oxygen? That would be a hospital-level intervention. The trickier ones are determining which patients need inpatient monitoring just for their level of distress or their work of breathing or their level of tachypnea um, to the point where we feel like they're at risk to get worse and that wouldn't be safe in the outpatient setting or Mm -hmm. for someone to be monitored at home. Those are a little harder to determine. I like to get some information about where I think they are in the course of their illness, Um, to help determine that. I also think about um, touching base with a pediatrician to see, is this someone you've seen already? Are you comfortable following this patient in the outpatient setting versus you've seen them a couple times, you're worried about their trend and thus have referred them to the emergency room. So all of those things are factors that I think about in determining whether a child actually needs to be in the inpatient setting. Oh, okay. So you're thinking about their trend, their follow-up, and Can you explain more when what you mean when you say day of illness? Sure. So we know that bronchiolitis generally worsens days three, four, five of illness. And so if someone is kind of approaching that anticipated peak of their illness, I'm a little more concerned that the next 24 hours are more critical for them, that they could potentially be worsening in that span of time, as opposed to... Maybe they've had symptoms just for one day and they're early in their course and have good follow up and maybe it's someone who could be followed up in the outpatient setting. However, if they have a moderate level of distress or need for any of those hospital little hospital level interventions that I mentioned earlier, then of course their day of illness doesn't really matter. They need to come in no matter what. All right. So we're headed down to the ED to admit our potential bronchiolitic. What questions do we want to make sure we ask the patients and the parents rather when admitting these patients? I think it's really good to do, like any patient, um, a really thorough history. You want to have a clear sense of when their symptoms started, what exactly changed in those symptoms to make the parents bring them to the hospital at that particular time, often you'll hear they've had a few days of upper respiratory symptoms or some cough and runny nose. But you always want to know what about this point in time made you decide that you are you were worried enough to bring your child to the hospital. Um, That's always really helpful because clearly there's been some turning point in the illness Mm -hmm. that made the parent or the pediatrician more concerned. I also just like to ask about the features of the illness. What are they seeing at home? Coughing, nasal congestion. You certainly want to know about um, anything that sounds like it could be apnea or a pause in breathing Mm -hmm. and um, any color change associated with that, which would be a more worrisome sign and um, a more severe complication or consequence of bronchiolitis. So really... Using your complete history skills as you normally would. I like to ask about feeding because we know that when children have trouble with their breathing, that coordinating their feeding is something that becomes more difficult and sometimes hydration can be sacrificed. So that's another thing I like to ask about as well. Um, activity level, you know, how alert and active are they or is that significantly decreased as well. You really want to get a sense of how much this illness is affecting them in all of the domains that we know it's possible. And when when these kids come in and you get their history, what red flags would you get in the history besides the, the current illness? Make you think of a patient as particularly high risk. Sure. So certainly... I get more concerned that the younger the patient is, the less than four-week population, the neonates um, just don't have as much respiratory reserve. Um, they also have these incredibly tiny airways, and so even more prone to having um the inflammation cause um a more severe illness in them and more severe distress. So I do worry about the younger children. Certainly um a child with pre like with a history of prematurity. Mm-hmm. As well, an infant with a a history of prematurity or any underlying lung problems or chronic lung disease. Anyone with underlying medical conditions in general, um, I would be worried about. I also worry about the child, like I mentioned, who maybe has a history of what sounds like apnea during this illness. Mm. Those are at, um, those children are at a higher risk to have apnea during their inpatient stay, and that's certainly something that you would want to watch for while they're admitted. So someone who has a history of apnea, I definitely put in the high-risk category. Oh, wow. Absolutely. Would a history of apnea alone, especially in the patient who may not yet be vaccinated for pertussis, make you think about getting getting testing? Or is that not, not something not some you go for? Right? You know, I think that you'd also need to take additional factors into account. Are they coughing? Do they have a reasonable... Risk for pertussis um, in their household? Are they hypoxic? Does their clinical exam reflect pertussis as opposed to a viral bronchiolitis? Mm -hmm. A pertussis patient wouldn't necessarily have the same degree of nasal congestion. Mm -hmm. They tend to sound not, um, their lower respiratory findings are not similar as well. They don't necessarily have the crackles and ronchi on exam mm-hmm. that a patient mm-hmm. with bronchiolitis might. So I think you could discern um, the likelihood of either one based on that history and physical and then right. test accordingly. Mm-hmm. All right. So the kids come up to the floor. Um, I think of at least in the ED triage of bronchiolitis, some of them have work of breathing difficulty with ventilation, need high flow nasal cannula. Mm-hmm. Some of them have um, desaturations, difficulty with oxygenation, need oxygen via nasal cannula. When and what should we be doing to provide oxygen to these patients? Sure. So the most recent iteration of the clinical practice guidelines for bronchiolitis talk about oxygen use only in the setting of hypoxia. And that's a recommendation to Mm -hmm. use oxygen, certainly if a patient is hypoxic. And I believe the, the guidelines are even at less than 92%. Now, there's a lot of anecdotal use of oxygen, low-flow oxygen, just for work of breathing. Mm. This is something that isn't addressed in the clinical practice guidelines. There are some interesting papers out there that look at um, high-flow oxygen, even compared to low-flow oxygen, Mm -hmm. to look at the reduction in work of breathing. And there was actually an interesting paper that looked at flow given at particular liters of flow per volume of weight from Mm -hmm. 0.5 liters per kilo all the way up to two liters per kilo, which would be considered in the more high flow category. And it did seem like there was a dose dependent reduction in worker breathing, the more flow per kilo that you gave. But I don't know if we can say across the board that low-flow oxygen really provides the, the ventilatory support that mm-hmm. high-flow oxygen does. And thus, in keeping with the clinical practice guidelines, I would really only recommend oxygen if someone is truly hypoxic. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I something that I've heard, right, is probably when um, you're talking about the, the fact that if you do provide low-flow oxygen and not just twenty one percent, you may artificially reduce the work of breathing. Is that what we're getting at? Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. So when you when you think about the physiology of bronchiolitis and you think about the physiology of asthma, Mm -hmm think about the age of patients diagnosed with bronchiolitis and the age of patients diagnosed with asthma. There's that overlap and mm-hmm. sort of the late, like the almost two, or a little yes. after two range. Mm-hmm. Some bronchiolitics, we start to trial albuterol. And can you sort of explain this connection? <sighs> sure. So I think it, it, it can be confusing, particularly in the age range that you mentioned. I start to think about that overlap happening around a year and a half, but certainly maybe even in children over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, wheezing can be present in children with bronchiolitis. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, you know, wheezing is airflow through a narrowed airway. Mm-hmm. And so the mechanism for that wheezing in bronchiolitis is more typically that the airway is narrowed because of a lot of secretions or um, airway inflammation. Mm-hmm. It's a little different than bronchospasm in an asthmatic. Now, so It's not surprising to hear wheezing in bronchiolitis. The question is, will albuterol help that wheezing? Mm -hmm. And the clinical practice guidelines actually looked at the use of albuterol and found that it really did nothing to shorten length of stay for children with bronchiolitis. Um, While maybe there was some reduction in severity scores, so Mm -hmm. symptom severity scores for the places that track that while maybe there was some reduction in scores after the use of albuterol, that again, it didn't overall decrease length of stay for these patients. So generally, it is not something that is recommended. What's interesting is that the latest clinical practice guideline actually changed the recommendation from a prior version. The prior version had said reasonable to try albuterol once, for a patient who's wheezing um, with bronchiolitis, but then if it doesn't help, don't do it anymore. Mm, the okay. most recent iteration actually says not even worth it to try it the one time. Now, having said that anecdotally, in a patient who has wheezing and maybe a strong family history of asthma and is a little older, um, over 18 months, close to two years, I and, it, and is in distress with that wheezing, Mm -hmm. I will try it to see, again, if it provides some symptomatic relief. Mm -hmm. Because I do think there's still some value to that, to providing the symptomatic relief for the patient itself, knowing that it may not actually decrease their length of stay or any of those measurable outcomes. So generally not something that is recommended per the clinical practice guidelines. But I think you have to approach each patient kind of individually and see if there's value in trying it at least... Once, Mm. if you think there may be some component of reactive airway disease as well. So they get a shot, the alburol seems to help. Mm -hmm. In a patient with a high asthma predictive index, Mm -hmm. perhaps on their second episode of bronchiolitis, Mm -hmm. where you hear a wheeze and the alburol helps, at that time, do you start to think about adding steroid or, or sort of merging your treatment towards more of an asthma management from a bronchiolitis standpoint? That's a great question. And I think that is a tricky question, and I don't think there's a consistent right answer for that question. Mm-hmm. I generally do not do steroids, nor are steroids part of the for clinical practice guideline no. for um, for bronchiolitis, but um, I have certainly seen that done when it does feel like the disease process is more reactive airway mm-hmm. rather than bronchiolitis. For, for me... I think that um, you have to approach each patient individually mm-hmm. and, um, and counsel about why we're using albuterol or why we're not and give patients and pa- give families good anticipatory guidelines and guidance about why to um, or what to look for in the future. Because mm-hmm. you do want to let a family know that this wheezing that happens with a viral illness in a patient with asthma in their family you know, so could certainly come back as wheezing and develop into something else later on. Mm-hmm. But that I don't like to commit those children to a diagnosis of asthma at that time right. when there's clearly a viral process going on. So you, you give them a chance and sort of make their families aware that this might be coming. Exactly. And so they would know how to recognize it. Mm-hmm. And they would know it's, it's worthy of coming in to be seen and mm-hmm. um, to seek medical attention for. But I, I wouldn't commit someone with a clear viral trigger and bronchiolitis symptoms also to a diagnosis of asthma, just because there was wheezing present on their exam. Okay. That makes sense. So our patient is up on the hospital floor. Um, they're doing well. When do we, how do you make the decision between monitoring their oxygen mm-hmm. the entire time versus doing more of an intermittent sure Sure, That's a good question. I think that if hypoxia has never been part of this patient's, this particular patient's history... Or the interventions that they needed, that I would not keep them on a continuous pulse ox. And just per whatever your institutional standard is, for us, that would be um, checking pulse ox just with vitals every mm-hmm. four hours. Mm-hmm. That's our intermittent pulse ox. I think that is reasonable to check it along with the other vital signs. Um, there's definitely a movement towards decreasing our monitor overuse Mm -hmm. in bronchiolitis. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a multi-center study going on right now that Children's has participated in um, that looks at how we monitor patients with bronchiolitis who have never been hypoxic or who have gotten over their hypoxia yet still are on continuous pulse ox. Mm-hmm. And um, and it does seem like there's a lot of overuse of this monitoring technology. So if a patient was never hypoxic, um, I would not put them on continuous pulse ox. And if they had been hypoxic, but then were able to wean to room air and had been stable on that for 12 hours, mm-hmm. I think it's reasonable to take them off continuous pulse ox monitoring at that point as well. I think it's something that um, needs to be paid attention to like we would on rounds, every medication we give, the IV fluids we give, kind of revisit, is this still necessary? Um, and once we can kind of get used to that culture, we can stop monitor overuse and bronchiolitis. So we decrease the monitor use, increase potential, false causes, positive concern, get them out of the hospital faster. Exactly. And I think it also, as long as a patient's on a monitor, I think it also sometimes sends the signal to the parent that we feel like they need that level of monitoring, which may make a family a little more wary of going home if up until the point of discharge, they'd actually been on a continuous monitor. And then all of a sudden you're saying, actually, no, they're fine to go home. I think it would be good discharge preparation if, similar to all the other interventions we do, we really start to scale them back as we're getting closer to discharge and continuous Pulse ox monitoring is one of those interventions that I think we could scale back well before discharge. Oh, absolutely. Signpost that checks every four hours are fine. Exactly. Exactly. And then the family also gets the sense that we don't feel like that level of monitoring is needed anymore and, and, and gets more comfortable with the idea of the monitoring that they can do at home. So we're rounding on these patients. We're mm-hmm. assessing their vital signs, work of breathing, um, hydration status. Mm -hmm. And then even though we're not using antibiotics medications, Mm -hmm. we're we're thinking about our oxygen, our IV fluids Mm -hmm. and our monitoring as sort of medications that we need to make decisions on. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if I'm the intern on service and I'm thinking about this at a more granular level, if I'm reporting to you oxygen saturation, our Q4 checks of 93, or if Mm -hmm. they're all 95, 96, or Mm -hmm. if they start to, at what level do you, do you, Think about maybe adding the the pulse ox back on. Sure. I think that consistent DSATs below 90 warrant going back on oxygen. Okay. Um, and I say persistent um, intentionally there because mm-hmm. we can all have intermittent DSATs, you know, if a child is coughing, um, mm-hmm. maybe related to positioning. So I think that we need to do those things that we know can maybe help us self-resolve those DSATs, and if they they don't, and we're positive it's a good waveform and such, that at that point below 90, I would put a child back on oxygen. Okay. All right. So they need oxygen only for our goal sets above 90, and, and we're not putting that pulse ox back on unless mm-hmm. they need oxygen. Exactly. Okay. The other sort of inter- in-house intervention that we tend to do for these kids is frequent Bulb suction or frequent nasal suction Mm -hmm. or frequent deep suction. Can Mm -hmm. you sort of explain the different types of suction that we have to offer and how we use them? Sure. So starting with the least invasive, um, think about the bulb suction, which is... um, at the bedside of almost every patient with with bronchiolitis and just really is able to clear the nares themselves of any mucus and congestion that's there. So I would say that's the least invasive. The next would be what we use institutionally, the Yangauer suction, which is a more rigid catheter suctioning that uses the benefit of of being attached to the wall suction. So it's Mm -hmm. a deeper suction that's generated than the bulb, but still only can go so far because it's a rigid catheter. And then deeper catheter suctioning or like the thin catheter tube suctioning Mm -hmm. um, is a thin flexible tube that can go even deeper into the airway to suction. We tend to not use that catheter suction as often because as if anything is introduced into the airways and comes in contact with the walls of the airways that Mm -hmm. can induce bronchospasm, which we wouldn't necessarily want to do in really any patient. Mm -hmm. I'm more familiar with the ICU using that level of Mm -hmm. suctioning, Mm -hmm. and they also have higher levels of monitoring and more rescue interventions available immediately. On the floor, we typically just use the bulb suction and that rigid yank hour suctioning. So those, but Yankauer suctioning is a hospital level intervention mm-hmm. because again, it's attached to that wall suction and it's not something that a parent, a parent could do at home. Oh, absolutely. And that's what, when, when we talk about when was their last deep suction, it's mm-hmm. the last Yankauer suction. On the floor, on, yes. On the floor. Mm-hmm. Okay. How would you, how would you compare it to the Nose Frida? Mm, you know, I, as a parent, <laughs> I actually never used the Nose Frida at home. My children were very amenable to being aggressively bulb suctioned, okay. <laughs> um, I can't blame you. But I will say colleagues of mine love the nose Frida and there is actually a study that is looking at the use of the nose Frida in the hospital versus just bulb suctioning mm-hmm. versus Yank Hour suctioning. And um, to see if oh. if the level of suctioning matches that at all of like a wall suctioning, which I think is an interesting idea. Because we think about Yangara suctioning being a hospital level intervention, and there was evidence that the nose Frida produced similar results, that would be huge and maybe could change the the trajectory of some kids that are admitted with bronchiolitis. Mm -hmm. But that is, I think, just an early ongoing study. So I personally don't have experience with the nose Frida. But anecdotally, from my colleagues and the parents apparently it's fantastic (laughs) and better than the bulb is what I have been, I have been told potentially a way to scale down our hospital level interventions a little sooner, a little sooner, potentially. So we have our patient with bronchiolitis. Maybe they required high flu and were transferred out of the ICU Maybe they required oxygen from some time and now are we to move air. Maybe they required frequent deep suction and now haven't required it for some time. Mm-hmm. How do we get to the point where we decide they're ready for discharge? Sure. And I think this is something that really we should have been thinking about from day one admission. Mm-hmm. You know, every time you think about why a child needs to come into the hospital, you should automatically think be thinking about what goals they need to meet to be able to leave the hospital. Mm-hmm. So for our bronchiolytics, I think, again, about what hospital-level interventions are they requiring and when have they stopped requiring those. So I certainly would want to see a patient maintain hydration on their own if that's something that they were not able to do. Do they have to take full maintenance? No. Mm -hmm. But you want to at least see that they're on the right track and their trend is improving. And... I think there's a little bit of style involved with how much does a patient need to drink before Mm -hmm. they get to go home, but certainly at least 50% of their maintenance seems like a reasonable goal. Again, taking every patient as an individual and and tailoring that a little bit. For the patient that needs oxygen, I like to see that they can stay off of oxygen during a sleeping period. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be overnight, but um, if it's a child who does take a nap during the day... And you can see um, them nap well without needing to go back on oxygen. That's a sufficient sleeping period. Um, Suctioning is a more difficult one. The practice guidelines for bronchiolitis also don't address suctioning and its frequency Mm -hmm. and such. So this is something that's a little bit left to the provider. But I like to see that someone can be successfully weaned to bulb suction and the parent's comfortable with that level of suctioning and we're not seeing that there's copious secretions and, and, and worker breathing associated with that. So once they meet whatever goal um, that hospital-level intervention had been providing, whenever they meet that on their own, that's usually when I think about discharge. So before we discharge a patient, we really want to one of the good things about having a kid in the hospital is that you have time to sometimes to talk to their parents mm-hmm. uh, more extensively. Mm-hmm. So how do we talk to these parents at discharge? Is their kid going to get this again? Are they going to have breathing problems? Why no antibiotics? And and really what are our return precautions? Sure. And I think a lot of bronchiolitis guidance really starts with when they get admitted. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to stress that it's a viral illness And so there's no medication that's going to get rid of it right away. It's an illness that needs to run its course, but that some children need additional help and support getting over the worst part of the illness, getting over the symptoms of the illness and managing the symptoms of the illness. And that we feel a child is ready for discharge when they've clearly gotten over the peak of their illness and we feel confident that they're only going to keep getting better each day at home. Mm-hmm. So I think that conversation actually starts with admission to just mm-hmm. make make sure the family understands what the goals of the inpatient admission are. Mm-hmm. I I'm I am pretty good about saying and and really making sure a family understands that a child may not be back to 100% their normal self. I think it's, it's very important to set that expectation. They might still have some congestion. They might still be coughing. Their breathing may not still be 100% back to normal. But what's important is that they've shown us a trend where we think the likelihood of them getting worse again is mm-hmm. very low. Mm-hmm. So that's usually how I prep for discharge that we feel the child is at a point where the risk of them getting worse again is really low. In terms of can they get bronchiolitis again, they can, unfortunately. And sadly, it's it's not something that you don't, you don't get any immunity from. So mm-hmm. they absolutely can. I talk about ways to try to control um, exposure to viral illness, which is challenging depending on what kind of environments mm-hmm. the child is in, but just good hand washing and sanitizer use and things like that. But a child can absolutely get it again. Even if we identify what virus is causing the bronchiolitis, they can get that kind of bronchiolitis again. If it's RSV, you can get RSV multiple times in your lifetime. Mm -hmm. So that is something I think it's good to let a family know. Will they have breathing problems when they get older? It's hard to say. Again, the child who has a strong component of wheeze with a high asthma predictive index, I do counsel that this is something that could happen again in the future. But that is where the role of the pediatrician is really helpful in kind of seeing what the child's trend is and identifying if a pattern of asthma is starting to emerge. Mm -hmm. So I do like to counsel towards that, but that it's not necessarily a slam dunk that a child is going to develop any permanent respiratory problems. And more often than not, they don't. Mm -hmm. We talk, I talk about bronchiolitis being a viral illness over and over during the course of the hospitalization so that a family can understand why we're not using antibiotics or any mm-hmm. kind of other adjunctive medications. And I liken it to a common cold that an adult can relate to. There's nothing really we can take for the cold. We just have to kind of let it run its course. And so I try to draw that parallel to help families understand why we don't use antibiotics for bronchiolitis. And in terms of return precautions, I often remind them of the things that worried them when they first brought the child in. If you see that rapid breathing again, if you see that their chest and belly are moving a lot with their with their breaths, if they seem like they're not feeding well or any of those things that concern them the first time, those are often my return precautions for if you see those things again, that's when you should be coming back. And then as, as they're leaving, you're talking to them about return precautions. How, how soon do you like them to see their PCP and, and are there ever kids where you want to refer them to a pulmonologist? Sure. So I, I like most children with a respiratory illness, whether it's pneumonia, bronchiolitis, asthma, I think all of those children should have close PMD Mm follow-up because again, you're not 100% when you're getting discharged from the hospital. So I think it's important for someone to be able to follow up and make sure that the positive trend we've seen in the hospital is continuing Mm -hmm. once they've gone home. Mm -hmm. So I recommend usually follow up with a pediatrician one to two days after discharge, Mm -hmm. if that's reasonable for the family. And usually I expect that and I counsel that, that visit is really to make sure the patient is continuing to improve as we would expect them to at home and that the symptoms that they're still seeing, like cough and runny nose and things like that, are just getting better each day. If a child has had a particularly severe course of bronchiolitis, needing um, intubation in the ICU um, or other high levels of respiratory support, or they're in a high-risk population, like a premature baby with some underlying lung disease, I think about sending those kids to pulmonary or someone who's had recurrent severe episodes Mm -hmm. of bronchiolitis. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we see children who have had multiple ICU stays for bronchiolitis. Those are kids I send to pulmonary because I do wonder if this is an early sign that they are ultimately going to have other respiratory diagnoses. And I think hooking them into pulmonary early can be helpful in that. Okay. All right. I want to ask about a couple more things. Mm-hmm. Um, routinely obtaining and the value of the respiratory viral mm-hmm. panel, mm-hmm. I hear you hear rumors that, well, in, in some places, we might put all of the kids with RSV in the same part of the hospital. Or right. we might, you know, if we know they have RSV, then we can only put them on... Contact precautions and non-droplin mm. and things like that. Do you right. when you think about these things? Can you see, can you see you squeaking out any value from these tests? I, I really can't, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. I think that certainly from a management standpoint, there's really no value <laughs> to knowing what virus it is. They even did a study to look at apnea risk and, and trying to define which patients were the highest risk for apnea, because sometimes you hear This is a young RSV baby. They need to be admitted because they're at risk for apnea. And there have been studies that have shown um, that all the other viruses that we see in the winter, rhino, human metapneumovirus, all these things also cause apnea. So it shouldn't just be the RSV babies that are getting monitored. Um, So from a management standpoint, I don't think the virus matters. Institutionally, if you're in a situation where you have to cohort patients, mm-hmm. is there value to knowing what someone has? I guess so, cuz I certainly wouldn't want someone to get exposed to something they didn't have, but in an in an institution where we have mostly single patient rooms, mm-hmm. that doesn't really become no. an issue. So, I think that from a management perspective, it's not something that's actually helpful. I think parents always like to know, but it does not change what we do. And and so I try to give a lot of guidance that really doesn't matter which virus it is. We're still going to do the same things to support your child through the illness. So knowing which virus it is by getting this expensive test, is it really going to help us? Are there patients where the illness script isn't as respiratory only? And you think about sending a flu? You know, uh, certainly. And I think that, you know, I think that sometimes especially during this time of year in the winter where we see so much bronchiolitis, it's easy to just get down that tunnel of this is bronchiolitis and I'm not going to think about anything else. But I think you should always, if your patient's kind of not fitting that illness script with with higher fevers, certainly an older child, someone who's maybe a a little more ill appearing, Mm -hmm. and they're in an early part of their illness where you actually think that if you found out they were flu positive, you might start Tamiflu. I think it's important to keep an open mind because you don't want to miss something because they came in with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis and now you're kind of stuck with that tunnel vision. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about is I hear rumors and I've heard people cite data about Mm. the link between RSV and urinary tract infections. Mm. And then I hear that an infant coming in with fevers will likely just get a UA. And Mm -hmm. yeah, what do you think about this? So I think, so from the data I've seen, essentially viruses, we know Mm -hmm. RSV included can cause fever, but if you feel like the illness script or the, the way your patient is progressing with high fevers, in the setting of maybe improving respiratory symptoms, mm. if you're starting to think there is something else going on here, essentially what literature has shown is that you, the risk of the incidence of UTI is, is just as high in a child with RSV as it would be in a, in a child who does not mm, have RSV. Okay. And so it's worthwhile to check for a UTI in these children. So simple way to do that, screening UA. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, depending on your age as well, um, a lot of our RSV children are infants. A lot of first-time UTIs are diagnosed in that age range as mm-hmm. well. But that same correlation or that same incidence isn't necessarily seen with like bacteremia and RSV or meningitis and RSV. And so those are bacterial illnesses that could certainly cause fevers and such, but shouldn't be your first thought. A very reasonable first thought would be checking for a urinary tract infection. Okay, All right. So you've got the improving respiratory symptoms, high persistent fevers. Maybe you can go to find the online pediatric UTI calculator mm-hmm. um, and and think about whether or not you want to screen them, no. sort of exactly. independent of their respiratory. Exactly. Illness. Exactly. Don't let the fact that they have that viral respiratory illness. Keep you from pursuing a bacterial origin for that fever or whatever whatever other symptoms they are um, exhibiting for you. I think that's the big take home from that. Mm. Well, as we close up here, any other any other common common new uh, new pediatric resident or mistakes that you see or, or common pitfalls for a new newer clinician taking care of a bronchiolitis patient? You know, I think I think the biggest thing is that we see so much bronchiolitis that we get sometimes lulled into a complacency that these kids are fine and i think the the thing to remember is that the severity the the spectrum mm-hmm. of severity for bronchiolitis mm-hmm. is really broad there are many children who are fine to be monitored at home with mild symptoms being you know checked on by their pediatrician versus the child that comes in with respiratory failure and the time that it takes to go from one part of the spectrum to the other can be quite short. And so I think to remember that bronchiolitis can be a severe illness and still, um, and make sure you're still kind of watching what the trend is for a particular patient and not to just kind of assume because we see so much of it that oh, they're fine, and, and they'll be better in a day or so. Mm-hmm. The severity spectrum is, is broad, and mm-hmm. those kids can be quite sick and need a lot of intervention, and that change can happen quite quickly. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do uh, our closing question. <laughs> we would love to hear either one thing you learned this week that you can't get out of your head, or your favorite thing about being a pediatric hospitalist. Ooh, so many, so many exciting things. Um, gosh, My favorite thing about, I'll do a favorite thing about being a pediatric hospitalist, working with residents. And and, no, I think it is just constantly being able to take care of the patient as a whole and spend time with families. I love, there's certain organ systems I love individually, but I think just being able to look at a patient in their entirety and, and really impact them in a short amount of time that I have them as their hospitalist attending. But I really feel like I get to reap the rewards of this short time in the hospital and seeing a child get so much better Mm -hmm. before they get to go home. And also just capture a lot of other interesting preventive care aspects at the same time. I mean, we give immunizations for a child who is delayed and we make sure families have resources for insurance and, and finding a pediatrician. And I just, love what this little period of time they have in the hospital, how impactful you can be on their overall health. It's just, you get to take care of all parts of that. That's lovely. Well, Dr. Holly, thank you so much for this interview. You are welcome. definitely going to change my practice in several
1: ways. I'm so glad. It was a pleasure. Alice, what an awesome episode that was. Oh, thank you. I agree. Really changed my practice in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think for me, it really hit home the fact that I mean, supportive care is the answer for, like, the vast majority of these cases. So just being really thoughtful about the fact that when we admit these kids to the hospital, even something like suctioning is an intervention – Mm-hmm. And it should be taken seriously. And the way that on rounds, you should evaluate each of these supportive care measures, even if it's something as simple as the continuous pulse ox and and peel it off of the treatment plan as soon as possible. Exactly. Exactly. We want to just take a moment to thank Dr. Hallie again for these amazing pearls that she gave us in this, in this episode and um, just – tell you guys that if you have any thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, please email us. Yes. pedsadmit at gmail.com. Really? We're really just sitting here, I don't know, refreshing, just waiting. Waiting. Just, just eager with anticipation. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> email, email us. <laughs> All right. We'll see you next time.